The Lord bless us. If you have a Bible, and turn to 2 Corinthians 5, uh, page, as I said. Actually, it's on 1,032. We've been going through this on a Sunday evening, and I've been preaching. And uh, those who remember, uh, last time we looked at that lovely expression, we're ambassadors for Christ. Ambassadors make known the gospel of the Lord Jesus. God has entrusted that to such as you and such as me. I want to go on this evening to look at uh, the last verse, verse 21. Now, strictly speaking, there's, an, uh, it's, there's two halves here, but we're not going to get through a second half, and I'm not going to try to force it and spend more and more time on it. Tonight, we'll have to keep to another playing time. But we are going to look um, at the first part. And I'm going to call this the heart of the gospel. Now, it's a big title for a little verse, I might say. Um, but I hope you'll see by the time we've finished that the truth contained in this verse is at the heart of the Christian gospel, the evangelical gospel, the gospel by which we live and die, I trust. So we're going to look at a few things which may sound a little bit negative to start, but I think it needs to be said in these days. And by that I mean that there are folk out there who will talk about Christians or Christianity, and they will talk about the gospel, and they may, may even talk about the cross. But we have to say, what do you mean by that? What do you mean by these expressions? Because different people mean different things. Now, you know the word gospel means evangel, it means good news. And people say, oh yes, I believe in the Christian gospel. And you say, well, what do you mean by the Christian gospel? What do you mean by you believe in the Christian message? And they would say something like, well, uh, God is love, and God loves us all, in spite of what, who we do and what we are or what we believe. And uh, that's their understanding of the gospel. Now, there's an element of truth there, obviously. But it's not the full gospel as contained in the Bible, particularly in the New Testament. So it's not enough to say that. That, oh, yes, God loves people and it doesn't matter. Because ultimately, many of these folk actually believe in what is called universalism. They believe that everybody will be saved, everybody will be in heaven, that nobody will be in hell because it's not a real place anyway, and God, a God of love, wouldn't send people to hell. So that's their view of the gospel, the view of the Christian faith. Now, we would have to challenge that. We'd have to say, that's not what the Bible says. That's not what the Lord Jesus says. And the, strange enough to some, it may seem, but the person who speaks about hell and eternal judgment, mostly in the New Testament, is the Lord Jesus. And it's not so strange when you think about he knows most about that fatal time, that fatal day when God will cast unbelievers into the lake of fire and everlasting torment will be their portion. 
Now that's serious, isn't it? And these folk wouldn't believe that. And so they say, yes, well, oh, I, I believe a bit more. Um, you know, God is love, uh, yes. But what about the other attributes or other uh, considerations, characteristics of God? What about a God who is holy, a God who is just, a God who is righteous, a God who can't easily forgive sin as if it's not important to him. It doesn't really matter, you know, uh, there, there, you know, be a good boy and be a good girl and it's okay, kiss and make up kind of thing. We've got to understand that for God to deal uh, with this sin that you and I have, are, is a huge plan, purpose. It's a big thing for a holy God to deal with our sin and our wrongdoing and to forgive and to pardon and to welcome us into heaven. It's a big thing. It's not an easy thing. It's not a simple thing. Now we, our understanding of it might be simple. That's, that's not the issue. But in and of itself, it's very complex and glorious. You see, somebody will say, oh, yes, well, I understand that um, you must have the cross. You've got to preach the cross. And if somebody mentions the cross, then obviously they're preaching the gospel. Not necessarily. What do I mean? Well, some would say, um, yes, I believe in the cross, and Jesus died on the cross as our example. He suffered not for the things he had done. He suffered uh, to give us an example of, of suffering when we are wrongly accused and, and, and give suffering uh, when, when we go through trials. He's the supreme example uh, in all that he did when he was alive and then when he died. Yeah, he's a wonderful example. We should follow him. We should be like him. Do unto others as, the, uh, uh, as you'd want them to do unto you. And all that kind of thing, the golden rule, the Sermon on the Mount. I remember a friend of mine who was a preacher in Wales, and somebody said this to him about following Jesus as an example. That's what, he, that's what the gospel was about, you know, the cross was about. He said, oh. So let me read you a verse from Peter about the Lord Jesus, who did no sin. All right, follow that. You mean, well, he, he's an example, and that's his example. He did no sin. You, do no sin. Oh, well, I can't do that. I can't be totally sinless. Right, he said. So you don't need an example. You need a savior. One to you. Jesus is an example. But his example only shows us how, fall, how, how much we have fallen from the standard God has set. If you think the law is high, if you think the standard of the law that God gave in the Old Testament, that's high. If that's high, you look at the life of the Lord Jesus, that's even, if I dare say, even higher. Because the law of the Old Testament tells us what we shouldn't do. But Jesus did that, complied with it, but more so. You should love the Lord thy God with thy heart, thy soul, thy mind, thy strength, and thy neighbor as thyself. Not only should you not do bad things, you should do good things. And 
And let's be honest, we can never, ever, if we lived a thousand lives in a thousand worlds, ever come up to the standard of the Lord Jesus Christ. Preaching the cross as an example is not enough. All right, so someone, okay, well, all right, let's think about the preaching of the cross, yes. Um, there's obviously forgiveness there. We, we need to, uh, he did it that we might be forgiven of our wrongdoing, of our sin. Um, so what he did, uh, he died to make it possible for people to be saved. Now, I'm using the words very carefully. I don't want to get too technical with you because I know sometimes it's, you know, it's hard to follow them, some preachers and get too technical. I don't want to be too technical, but I need to tell you the truth. I need to tell you what the Bible says. And if you have to struggle with it, then persevere with it because it's worth it. Did Jesus just die to make it possible for people to be saved? But it would depend upon them whether they were or not. Right? So what I'm saying is this. That, and some people believe this. That Jesus died, but his death wasn't totally efficient for them because if they didn't repent and believe, then they would be lost. And therefore, that would be it. In other words, the death of Christ didn't guarantee salvation for anybody. They just made it possible for them. Now, you need to think about that. If that was the case, if it ultimately it depended upon you and me and our response of ourselves, then nobody would be saved. Nobody would be saved because we haven't got it in us to have faith, to repent, turn to God, and do our bit. We are totally dependent upon God. Now, some will not like this teaching, but you can't avoid it if you believe in Ephesians 2, uh, right? For Paul says, you were dead in trespasses and sins. You were dead. Dead. You walked according to the course of this world, according to the power of the air. You were dead in trespasses and sins. A dead man can't avail himself of anything. Can you imagine the Lord Jesus saying to Lazarus, who's in the tomb, Lazarus, come out. I've got a new suit for you. Come out. I've prepared a meal for you. Come out. I've got all this for you. Lazarus, just come out. We'll be glad to see you. Your sisters will be happy to see you. The family will, and relatives, we're all here. Lazarus, come out. Lazarus can't come out. Why can't he come out? Because he's dead. He's dead. It's the strangest thing ever that here is a person who says to another, who's alive, says to another person who's dead, come out from there. He can't hear to come out. And if he could hear, which he can't, he couldn't come out anyway because he's dead. You say, Colin, you're really laboring this. Well, yes, I am, because it's so important. We cannot make ourselves alive. That's where we have to believe in what's called the sovereign grace of God. And he works in our hearts. He makes us alive. He enables us to respond. And then we come and believe and trust and have faith and repent and all the rest of it. That work must be of God. 
So, to say that it makes it possible is not good enough. The death of the Lord Jesus on the cross has to be definite. That's the key. That's the word that's used by some. A definite atonement. A particular redemption. He has to make it. It's not just sufficient, but it's efficient. It actually works. There will be people whom Jesus will save by his death. It's definite. It's determined. God has decreed it. And if he hadn't, nobody but nobody would be saved. Now, these are deep things, I know. And yet, they're important things. So let's have a little look at what this verse says, all right? For he, that is God, has made him to be sin for us who knew no sin. It might be better put like this. For he has made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. And that's probably the more correct Greek translation. Right? So it's about a person called Jesus who did no sin, who was sinless. And we have to grasp this. It's impossible for us to think of what sinlessness is because we are not sinless. Nobody would stand up in Gordon Road and say, Colin, I haven't sinned today. I haven't sinned this week. In fact, I can't remember the last time I sinned. Well, you've got a very peculiar memory, I thought I would say. Every one of us, to a lesser or greater extent, we sin. We make mistakes. We do that which is wrong. We say, we think, we do, we respond, we react. We are sinners. But here is one who was sinless. The Lord Jesus Christ is sinless. He was sinless as the eternal God in heaven before he came to earth. He was God, equal with the Father, with the Spirit. He was sinless. He was totally pure and holy. Now, what happens when this God, the Son, comes to earth and he becomes a man? He takes to him flesh and blood. He's like you and like me. Now, is there this possibility of him sinning. Now, he's a man in this world. He lives in this world. He lives with a normal family. He has brothers and sisters, technically half-brothers, half-sisters, but he lives in this world. He works with his hands in the carpenter shop and all the rest of it. Now, he's a, in the, he's a living, working man. Is it possible for him to live in this world without sinning? Yes, it is. Yes, it was. He is sinless, as God, he is sinless as a man. And this is mentioned several times in the scriptures that the Lord Jesus Christ was without sin. And yet it's stressed, the Bible stresses that he wasn't without temptation. Somebody might say, yeah, well, it's all well for him. He was the son of God, you know, and he doesn't, he doesn't know the trials I have. He doesn't know the temptations. He doesn't live with the wife I have or the husband I love or whatever, right? No, he was sinless in this world, but he was tempted. He was tempted of the devil. We know that from the beginnings of the gospel. Uh, the devil tempts him. Uh, other times he was tempted. And in fact, right into the uh, believers, uh, the Hebrews, uh, Christians in, 
Hebrews chapter 4 and a little bit in chapter 2 as well, the, the writer says, now listen, this high priest of ours, this one who represents us, right, in the Old Testament, he had to be a man subject to, to like passions as we are, a man who is a normal man, if you like, and, and he would have to offer a sacrifice himself for others, but Jesus offers a sacrifice for others, but not for himself. Why not? Because he had no sins for which he should need to sacrifice. Yet he was tempted in all points as we are, yet without sin. He is sinless. And in the Old Testament, uh, we are told that when a sacrifice was offered, it had to be without spot, without blemish. Now, farming community here in Sussex, a little bit. Um, some of you will know uh, that uh, wool comes from sheep and not from marks and sparks, right? And uh, milk comes from cows and not from Tesco's. Now, you know that, right? You're probably in the city, I'm going to tell you. But we know things. We know things. And we know, particularly sheep, they can be dirty and filthy and they can be all kinds of things. In the Old Testament, when God said, I want you to offer a sacrifice, so a ram, a sheep, or a goat, or a bull, or a cow, whatever, whatever it was, it had to be not the worst of the flock. Well, that's a rubbish old ram there. That's a rubbish old cow there. Let's get short of that. It had to be the best. This was a sacrifice to God. Better the best of the flock, the best of the cattle, the best of the herd, the best of the goats. It had to be the best. And the priest was entrusted to examine this sheep, examine this lamb. Are there any spots, any blemishes? Is it any good? I often mention to you uh, one of my favorite programs is the repair shop. And there are other programs that talk about restoration. And uh, I find it fascinating that uh, they've got an old leather garment or briefcase or something, and the expert looks and says, there's a spot on that leather. Uh, I'll have to deal with that. Because it's not good enough for this restoration or whatever. So the priest would look and was the lamb perfect, as perfect could be. There's no blemishes, no spots. And it had to be kept 14 days. And then if it was without spot, then it would be offered as a sacrifice. Now, the same principle comes into the New Testament. The Lord Jesus Christ is described as the Lamb of God without spot, without blemish. After three years, Jesus could say to the crowds, which of you convinces me of sin? Who can say, hey, I heard you say something you shouldn't have said. Hey, I saw you do something you shouldn't have done. Hey, I know about you, mate. Nobody could say anything about him. He was pure and holy and sinless. Now, you need to know that before we can move on. Because the verse says, God has made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. Now, this is a remarkable little phrase. And we've got to get it right. We really have got to get it right. And we've got to be careful we don't get it wrong. Now, Colin, you said the same thing twice. I know. I'm tautological. We've got to get the same thing. We've got to get it right. Jesus never became a sinner. 
chorus. Please never say that. Sometimes our pre- pre- we preachers, we go over the top a little bit. We're so excited. We so want to tell you about Jesus dealing with our sin. We almost give the impression that he became a sinner for us. He never became a sinner. But God made him to be sin in the sense of that he became the sin offering for all his people. And there are various words that are used in connection with this Jesus taking our sin. All right? Um, there's a word called vicarious. Vicar, vicarious. It means on behalf of. So Jesus takes our place. He dies on our behalf. Right. The, now the word is substitution. Well, that's an easy word, substitution. Uh, he becomes a substitute because he takes our place. He, takes our, he, he dies on our behalf. He takes our place as a sinner's place, but he's not a sinner. And what God does is that the, the, the penalty that we deserve because of our sin Jesus takes in our place on our behalf. That's why we talk about a penal substitution. All right? Have you got that? So it's a substitution. It's vicarious. It's penal because he deals with the penalty. He pays the penalty. Now, in simple terms, we would say Jesus paid the price. Jesus paid the price for our wrongdoing. We have incurred this great debt, and Jesus Pays the debt. I was thinking of a, of, of a little simple illustration. I thought, I wonder if people uh, in, in uh, Hailsham would, would know if I said about um, putting it on the slate. Does that mean anything? Do they do that on the dicker? Go to the grocers, right? Little Ruth started as a grocer. All right. Um, put it on the slate till Friday. Right, which meant for you youngsters, you put it better. Right, right, put it on the slate till Friday. Right, so you put up um, half a dozen eggs, sixpence. Back in the day, right, we'd on the slate, and then go Friday, you pay for it, and the white slate was wiped clean. Now it's a little illustration. We have incurred a great debt. Trouble is, come Friday, we've got nothing to. What's the grocer to do? Carry over to next week or the week after. And if he was serious and concerned and so forth and thought you were trying to get away with it, he might take you to court. And then you'd have to pay the whole amount and a penalty on top of that. Now, when it comes to our slate before God, it's covered. There's hardly any room to put any more. It's absolutely covered. And we've got nothing to pay. We've got nothing to pay. But Jesus wipes the slate clean, as it were. He pays the price. He dies in our place. And the wrath of God is poured out from the Father onto the Son. Now, there's a lovely word. We don't often use it. It's propitiation. That means averting the wrath of God. Here's this wrath of God that I deserve. 
the Father takes the wrath from me and he places on his son's head with his agreement. Notice that. It's not as if God says, right, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to slap you, bang you, crash you, and then you're going to suffer and die. And I said, and Jesus, what? What? You do that to me, your beloved son, your sinless son. You can do all that to me. That's not fair. That's not right. Jesus was in on the deal, if I can say it reverently. He was part of the plan conceived in eternity past. He agreed with the Father and the Spirit that he should come and he should die and he should suffer. He knew what was going to happen. You might say to me, so why all the business in Gethsemane where he's praying to have it, the cup pass from him? Well, I think the realization of the weight of that sin and what it meant to him and the relationship with his father, that they would, that would be broken as he became, as it were, a sin offering on our behalf. So the Lord Jesus Christ, by his death, accomplishes all these things. He made him to be sin for us who knew no sin. God did it amazingly. And he did a proper job, a perfect job. And the thing is, you see, this is a righteous act in the sense of, and this is why I keep quoting, I I love these verses from from chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, Paul has gone through a huge list of Righteousness and sin and all the rest of it, and proving that Jews and Gentiles are like they've all sinned. The Jews with the Ten Commandments, the Gentiles, the law of conscience, and whatever you've got, whatever kind of law you've got, the Ten Commandments or the law of conscience, you've fallen short of it. We're all guilty, every single one, Jew and Gentile, we're all guilty. And he sums it up in verse 23 for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That's a fact for you and for me. But then he goes on to say, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption is in Christ Jesus. There is an answer, there is a way out, and it's in Christ, and it's in the redemption. And it says in verse 25, whom God set forth to be a propitiation, there's the word again, uh, he set forth this atonement, this whereby Jesus suffered for God's wrath on our behalf, God has set forth it through faith in his blood, and this is the part, to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God, to declare, I say at this time, his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of him who believes in Jesus. You see, the big problem, if I dare say it like this, the big problem for God was the law. God could have sat in heaven and said, well, listen, I like this, this lot, uh, you know, they're not that bad, um, and I just want to forgive them, you know. I, I, I know I, the law says that they should be punished and condemned and all that, but, you know, that's what the law says. Uh, but I want to do something different. God could not do that. God could not bypass the law. Why not? Because it's his law. 
You might say, well, if it's his law, he can do it. But he can't do it because the law represents his character. This is the character of God. He's holy. He's righteous. He's majestic. And he's just. And the law demands punishment. And the law would say to God, you cannot do that. They sin must be punished, dealt with. You must pour out your wrath upon sin. You must do it because you're God. And God says, right, I will. I will pour out my wrath. I will get the penalty executed. But I will do it in my son. Mm. What can the law say? The penalty has been I don't know whether it's ever happened, but occasionally we hear a little story that goes something like this. And here's somebody before the judge in the courts of law. Uh, he, she uh, is guilty of some crime, and it's, it's, a, it's a poor old thing. And the easiest illustration is here's a woman with a family, and she's got no money. Her husband's left her. She's destitute, and she steals food from well, I'll pick out Sainsbury's for me. She steals food from Sainsbury's. That's a crime. She should be punished. She should be fined, whatever. And I'm not obviously saying she was right what she did. I'm not saying. But that's the real situation. And the judge says, right, you're guilty. I fine you £100. And she's there and she sobs away. She's never going to find £100, is she? And the kids are still sobbing. And so the judge says to the court, um, there'll be an anonymous gift of £100 to pay the penalty and another £100 to keep her going for the next couple of weeks. And we all know where the gift would come from. The judge himself. Now the law is satisfied. Penalty is paid. Money's paid in. That's fine. The law is satisfied. The woman is blessed. And the judge has done that which is righteous in his own eyes. Now, it's a small example. Don't press on it. Don't press it. Right? But can you see it? God has to be just. He has to be right. He has to be holy. And when he deals with our sin in his son, it's just marvelous. It's just marvelous. My sin and in part, but the whole is nailed to his cross. And I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Now, we need to live in the light of that. What do I mean by that? I mean simply this. When you're having a tough time, and you're really down, and the enemy would say, you know, you're a rotten little Christian, You've got all, you sing all these hymns and look at you, you've made a mistake again, you've failed, you're miserable. You're a sinner. What have you got to say for yourself? What do you say? You can't say he's wrong, can you? You can't say, oh, no, I'm not like that. Oh, yes, you are. Oh, no, I'm not. Oh, yes, you are. What do you do? You say, you're right. You're absolutely right. I am a great sinner. And in fact, there's more, much more that perhaps you don't know about that I've done that is not right. 
But let me tell you something. I am a great sinner. But I have a great Savior. No. Well, I'll try somewhere else then. Let me go. I have a great Savior. Now, I don't want to minimize sin. I don't want to do that. But I want to tell you that you need to know if you're a believer tonight that however great is your sin, the Savior is greater, greater. Where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. The lovely new hymn, newish hymn, my sin which are many, his mercy is more. It's more. How big is your sin? This big. How big is my mercy? That big. This big, that big, this big, that big, that big. Believe it. Rejoice in it. And may it stir you on to say, Lord, I know I'm a big sinner, but I want to be less of a big sinner. Can I be a little sinner? You know what I mean. Thank God for forgiveness. I'm not going to stay with it tonight, but I was thinking of all the ways, the descriptions that God has in the Bible for what he deals with our sin. As far as east from the west, you know, and in the depth of the sea, he washes us. And, and all these little phrases and, and kind of um, metaphors and similes that God deals with it. Whatever these are, and there are lots of them, perhaps we'll look at them another time. But whatever it is, whatever simile or illustration, whatever it is, you can be assured this. God deals with it properly, utterly, finally. Hallelujah. And he must. Now, Colin, be careful here. He must deal with it completely. Why must God deal with you as sin and my sin? Completely. Because Jesus died and bore the sins completely. Wonderful, it's wonderful. He made him to be sin. That he might be made the righteousness of God in him. Now we have a responsibility, don't we? To believe this, to trust this, to say, Lord, I don't understand everything that Corinth said. But one thing he did say was that Christ died for my sins. I believe that with all my heart. I will trust him as my savior. And to use Paul's words, the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And if you've got that in your heart, you can face tomorrow and the next day and the next day. You can face judgment. You can face God on that great day. And tell him, he made his son to be sinned. We thank you, Father, for your word. There's so much we could think about. and We trust you. You'll help us to realize this. That the Lord Jesus Christ died, the just for the unjust. He suffered for sin, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God totally, completely. You have us for time and for eternity, and you'll never lose us. You don't want to. In spite of our failings and their many, in spite of our shortcomings and their many, in spite of all our silliness, and it's much, there's so much there. 
Christ has redeemed us through his precious blood, the Lamb of God has paid the price, dealt with all our sins. Oh, hallelujah, praise the Lord. Amen. Now we're going to sing a hymn. I wondered whether to finish on uh, It Is Well With My Soul or this other one, which is a bit longer and a bit fuller. Another great hymn, I think you'll know it. Um, so I decided on this to finish. Um, so it's 517. Are we singing it to Rutherford? Good. So 517, oh, teach me what it meaneth, that cross uplifted high, with one the man of sorrows condemned to bleed and die. Oh, teach me what it cost thee to make a sinner whole, and teach me, Savior, teach me the value of a soul, and then it goes through its wonderful, wonderful hymn, every verse, 517.